our 2012 Vintage Year in Review on Episode 20 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to Episode 20 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, folks. Today's show is our annual Vintage Year in Review. Today we'll look at the highlights and lowlights of 2012. At the end of the show, we'll hand out our annual Best of Awards for Vintage, which we are now calling the Moxies. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter. Email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. Let us begin with a humorous irony. The very night our last podcast on the future of Vintage Online was published, Wizards of the Coast announced a plan for reprinting Force of Will online, which was a major part of our concern for the new format, and one of the items on our impromptu wish list for the format was to make these cards more available. So, Steve, we've already got our wish, at least part of it, immediately. Yeah, I, I think it, it looks like it's a created plan for addressing the supply problem. I don't quite understand the mechanics of it. Can you explain? Well, it is a little tricky. From what I've read and from Lee Sharp on Twitter, you can earn one for getting 15 qualifying points in a season. You can also earn one for doing X, or t- X and 2 or better in a prelim. And what prelim? So, like, a prelim, like a pre-release? No, there are preliminary tournaments for the Magic Online Championship series, and you have to earn qualifying points by doing well in daily events. You you earn points by winning drafts and similar events at a daily level. If you amass 15 points, you will qualify for a prelim for the Magic Online Championship series. If you then win a prelim or do above a certain threshold in a prelim, I'm not sure what the threshold is, but that qualifies you for the final tournament at the end of the season. So reaching the 15 qualifying points gets you a force of will, also allows you to play in a prelim. Going X and 2 or better in a prelim gets you one, and also top 64 in the finals can get you one. So you can earn a maximum of three per account. In the finals of... I don't understand what you mean by the finals. The Magic Online Championship Series that you're doing all this qualifying for. And the finals is a specific tournament, or is it a part of the tournament? (laughs) I believe they're referring to the last tournament of the season. Far more people will qualify for the prelims. Far more people will get 15 qualifying points and or go X and 2 in a prelim. So you'll have several hundred people doing that. I don't have the actual statistics. I'm not sure that they even released them. But the point is, is that's the meat of the giveaway is that if you get to the 15 qualifying points and do well in the qualifier you're qualified for, you could get one or two force of wills out of the deal. At any rate, this is great news. Now, I don't know how much this will address the issues and our concerns we had on our last podcast, but at the very least, this is good news that they are introducing additional force of wills into the environment to help quell the issues of cost, make them more available for the player pool. Yeah, this is very welcome news. And I imagine that this mechanism will be used for other cards that have issues with cost in the long run. So this does at least partially address our wish list for the format. I hope we'll see more of it. And if it's successful, it points towards solutions for other cards as well and increasing supply. 
This could also be one or a relation to the mechanism with which they're planning to distribute Power 9. We don't know. I hope not. (laughs) Well, I hope not as well, but I would be willing to live with it if it was only for a short period, and then they released them through broader means shortly thereafter. But... Like I, I don't want to rehash our whole last episode. I do yeah. share your concern, of course. I mean, one of, we did not in the last episode speculate as the possible distribution channels for Power Nine. We could do that, but I don't think that'd be very productive right now. I mean, that's something we could discuss in a future episode. I agree, but I imagine that that information will be well shared in advance along the way, the lines of which this force of will announcement has been shared. They want to build excitement for people cubing with the cards first and foremost. And then they'll move on to building excitement with regard to how they can get the cards after that. Steve, on a related note, we had some feedback from last episode's content. We're not the New York Times, but we will offer corrections from time to time. (laughs) Um, So a few listeners uh, had some specific corrections, and we don't respond necessarily to objections, but we will um, solicit and address any corrections that need to be addressed. In the last podcast, I said that Force of Will was around $150. As of right now, it's about $100, but it has in fact been around $150 in the past. A few uh, months ago, maybe more than a few months ago, I was online looking at Force of Wills, and they're around $150. And Ted Newton's article uh, he actually he wrote a, an article that got some press on Twitter and I think elsewhere on the web uh, entitled "Is the Price of Will Price of Force of Will Strangling Legacy on Magic Online?" It was published November 27th, uh, and in his article he says that Force of Will, according to his chart, is $120 was $120 at the time he published this and had been $120 a few months before. Um, so uh, the point is that while it wasn't actually $150 at the point we podcasted, it has been well over $100. Um, the uh, um, the other card I said was quite expensive was Lion's Eye Diamond. And um, Lion's Eye Diamond, while I remember it has been well over $100 at some point, I think close to $150. When, when Force of Will was $150, Lion's Eye Diamond was pretty close. Um, it is now uh, around $85 or so, according to um, some of the online retailers. Um, so just a correction there. It is still quite expensive and one of the most expensive cards uh, on Magic Online. Um, lastly, on the price issue, it would be great. I, I can't find a resource like the Black Lotus Project, which is a resource that shows you the trend lines for prices. But I can assure you that um, Force of Will has been uh, in at up to 150 at one point. But regardless of whether it's 100, 120, or 150, it's still unacceptably expensive. Given that Force of Will is the number one most played card in Vintage, month after month. If you go to Morphling.D and look, it's the most played card. It shows up in about two-thirds of all Vintage Top 8 decks. Uh, given that it's the most, it's the fundamental staple of the format, $100 is completely unacceptable. In fact, $80 or $60 would be unacceptable for the most important card in the format that you need four of. Yeah, even if Black Lotus came out at $100, Force of Will would still be the bigger problem. Exactly. So whether we quibble over whether it's 80, 100, 150, it's still unacceptably high. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. If the goal is to promote vintage, if the goal the goal for all vintage players, the promise of Magic Online for vintage players and the vintage community is the ability to play vintage uninhibited by the constraints of the reserve list. Force of Will, the most played card by far, not even close, month after month, year after year, Force of Will is the number one most frequently played card appearing in top eights. 
uh, at $100 is it essentially sets a $400 minimum barrier to entry to vintage online. That's minimum. And Ted's comments in his article on this topic relative to legacy map directly to vintage on this particular front and on this particular card. Right. So so everything that Ted, Ted said about force of will and legacy applies with greater force to vintage because you can actually play legacy decks without force of will. There are only a few decks in vintage you can play that don't have force of will. So everything he said about legacy applies with greater emphasis and greater concern because legacy already exists on a magic online. Vintage does not as of yet exist. And so if we're trying to call call into existence a new format, right, in the, the minimum buried entry is already 400 for just four cards. That's a gigantic problem. Agreed. And Legacy has plenty of other things going for it from a perception and player base and current tournament support standpoint. So Vintage can't hope to compete in that same realm. So just a couple other very quick corrections. Um, I think you, Kevin, may have said that Mana Drain and Mind Twist had not yet been printed. I, I knew that, but I didn't catch that. They had indeed been printed. Yeah, uh, that was my mistake. Both. I thought that they hadn't, but they are getting, I think, updates to their artwork, it looks like, which is cool. Yeah. One uh, last comment. I believe that's the extent of our corrections. Uh, one last comment. I am concerned about the frequency and quality of tournaments online, both Vintage and Legacy. Um, and, you know, I, I think this goes to something that you said. I think you had said at one point in our last podcast that Wizards is sort of controlling the flow of information from dailies, dailies meaning daily tournaments. Right. And I am concerned. I have to admit that I've gone in and purchased a number of other cards online since our last uh, podcast. And again, as I said in the last podcast, I've been going in periodically buying cards for the last two years. So I've you know, been buying cards for some time in, in anticipation of this moment. But I'm concerned with the degree of control that Wizards exercises on Magic Online. I mean, it certainly has the prerogative and legal right to do so. But in, in, a, in a real world, you know, Wizards isn't the only uh, uh, entity that sponsors tournaments, right? Uh, it isn't the only entity that, that uh, provides tournament support nor has it ever been, right? Um, and so I'm concerned that the monopoly power that Wizards has on Magic Online will actually create tournament prize incentive problems in the long run. You know, will there be high-quality high prize online? Will there be sufficient incentive for people to want to play? Will the quality of tournaments be high? Those are all problems that I have with hyper-control. I mean, it's already pretty difficult to, to sell cards, right? I mean, there are, you can't just go out and, like, sell a card to your buddy, right? I mean, it's not that easy, right? You have to find someone. You have to uh, trade tickets or something, right, event tickets. I guess you can sell something on PayPal, but it's not, it's not a simple process. Well, uh, to be honest, in one sense it's easier and in one sense it's harder. There is a lot more of a commodity market for selling Magic cards online to dealers. You can sit at your computer and just go to a dealer and say, I would like to sell you these 10 cards, and they'll tell you what the price is and you accept it or you don't. So from that standpoint, unloading cards is more quickly facilitated on Magic Online. But can you get cash? No, that's the hard part. You would be dealing in ticks, and then to turn ticks into cash, you do have to a um, much narrower set of options. So there's transaction costs. There is. And it, that's what I mean when I say yeah. that it's not simple. And, and all those transaction costs are basically profit channels for wizards. Agreed. But that's that's very disturbing. I, don't, I honestly don't know if Wizards provides any mechanism for turning ticks back into money. I don't think that they do. So how do how do the online dealers actually make money when you when I go to an online site and I exchange event tickets to them for, for online cards? How do they make a profit? Well, they are still moving their ticks 
for money at some point because players still need to buy tickets and it's cheaper to buy them from a dealer who's selling them for 97 cents on the dollar versus so what, what would be Wizards. so wrong what would be so wrong if is if wizard just allowed people to, to buy cards for paypal for cash essentially paypal money or whatever uh you know honestly i would have deferred to you on that question because there are issues of gambling laws dealing with real money for the cards i think that's part of it i don't think that gambling laws apply to the sale of electronic goods I certainly to enter into events, but I don't think that, you know, there's nothing chance about purchasing an item <laughs> online, no. even if it's an electronic item. Of course, you're correct in that regard. But the point is, is that I think that dealing with cash prizes, cash value prizes, uh, when it comes to giving away prizes for tournaments, they don't give away tickets, but they give away the product. But that has nothing to do with allowing secondary market to work like it does in real life without this transaction costing currency as event tickets. But we're getting we're getting kind of far afield. That's, I guess, another issue. Yep. But it, there is this issue as vintage and legacy uh, as is is legacy flowers online and vintage comes to online. I think there is an issue about the degree of control that Wizard exercises, which it has prerogative to do so, but that will limit both the popularity and how should I say it, the attractiveness of the formats online. In their full scope, I don't just mean the play, but their, you know, the markets and that, and so on. There is some feedback we got directly from our episode, but also some conversation on the manager drain that speaks to part of what you're saying, and that is the attractiveness of prize support. We haven't touched on it very much in this show, but anyone who's played at the vintage championships at Gen Con knows how very well the disappointment that comes from winning something like Italian Legends booster packs. Yeah. And you have the equivalent of that kind of disappointment in playing vintage online, or I'm sorry, hypothetically playing vintage online on Moto when all you're given is packs. Right. The packs could be cool. They could be Masters Edition, and maybe they contain more Moxon, but you've already played in the event. So all you're really doing is just getting packs, and there's no such thing within reason, as old boosters on Magic Online that they're going to be giving out. I suppose they could give out Invasion right. or something. And, but... and this goes to my point. Wizards ha- has and enjoys a monopoly turn- a monopoly of tournament sponsorship on Magic Online. Right. They're the only sponsor, right? They're the only, not just sanctioning body. The DCI is the sanctioning body in Paper Magic. But the DCI has always allowed other sponsors to sponsor tournaments. Right. That's a good point. There's, I mean, and, and that allows a market to emerge. It allows people to tournament organizers ostensibly to compete against each other, to offer better and better, better prizes. Well, I think that they are pretty clearly still not maximizing Magic Online in almost any sense of the word. When Legacy is just not very popular, Vintage isn't even there yet. They just recently, as in the last year, came up with Cube and made it available. The the software and the environment is simply not mature yet. Right. And so we can only hold on and look forward to and celebrate the things that they do release and add and grow. But we're still a long way from the Magic Online being an offering that mirrors printed Magic cards at this point. It has several advantages, as we've discussed, but it's still a long ways off. And I think that's been echoed in the feedback, especially on the Manadrain and some of the feedback to our last episode, that a lot of players who love vintage in print are not excited about transitioning or joining the online community to play. We've seen a lot of common threads in the feedback with regard to the cost of purchasing the cards as part of it, but also just the lack of incentive to or the lack of real value proposition from playing in that environment. 
Right. So vintage players, I mean, obviously derive primary enjoyment from just playing the format. Yep. But the secondary question is, what sort of prize support is there going to be? What sort of opportunities for meaningful competition are there going to be? If if the whole if the only real opportunity to play is like pitiful eight man events or you know daily eight man events or one on one competition, well, you can do that anywhere. <laughs> There's nothing to be gained. There's no promise of. of magic online for vintage there's no purpose right well sorry i i would i would not agree with that entirely but for the people who currently play the format that's true i would say right so the promise of the format is to expand vintage correct expand vintage by lowering the the barrier to entry to allow it you use the term the meritocracy of formats and right now the barriers to entry are so high now many people quarrel with my statement or object to it it's not a correction but an objection they say well the price of entry on vintage online is so much less than paper that's not an excuse <laughs> the, the the paper area to entry is equally unacceptable and i have for many years had problems with it and both of us have sought the not only the abolition of the reserve list but then mass reprintings so you know and the one of in the words of one writer who said that vintage players were hypocritical for um, seeking to lower the barrier to entry on vintage online. Not at all. We're not pleased with the fact that the reserve list came into existence in 1996. It's not something we wanted. Yes, the cost of vintage compared to print magic is lower. But you're right. If it doesn't have the proper cost structure and support online, it is still unacceptably right. both, high. Both, both elements. Right. right. Well, I think we've I think we've address this issue enough for this follow-up session about the last episode's topic. But I sense that this will be an ongoing discussion, and so uh, we are very keen to hear what our listeners think on this one. Write in and tell us what you think about Online Vintage and if you'll be joining it. We come now to our year in review for 2012. We're going to talk about new printings, important tournaments and decks, new cards and their place in the format, and we're going to also talk about the storyline of the year and end with our Moxie Awards for the best of these categories. So Steve, shall we start anywhere other than January 2012? Makes sense. It was in January that Dark Ascension was pre-released, was previewed and then pre-released, and it ultimately came out in February. But Dark Ascension brought with us, well, possibly the at least most numerous new card for the year in terms of tournament top eight performance, that being Grafdigger's Cage. It also brought several other interesting cards, which we reviewed on the show, like Thalia, for example, which enabled some additional power from green-white and X-White aggro decks, but obviously Grafdigger's Cage is a huge impact to the format, which we reviewed at length and continues to show up in numerous positions in top eights today. I think we were all blown away by Cage. It's multifaceted disruption, it's general utility, it's efficiency. Every aspect of the the card was impressive, and the card is, according to the November statistics on Morphling.de, the sixth most played card in vintage top eights. That's incredible. Which means it puts you in the company of Force of Will, Mana Drain, and Underground Sea. That is just really incredible, a testament to all the measures that you just mentioned. And whether or not we properly gauged the impact on the metagame, that's arguable. We definitely 
properly gauge the scope or the size of the impact of the card. It's just a major shift in the format. Yeah, the card is about as um, has become about as much of a format staple as one as a card can become. It is um, a a major marker or milestone in the vintage format, and will I suspect undoubtedly see play for years to come, especially given its interaction with Tinker, Yogmas, Will, both the Druids, and Dredge. And a lot was made of what Cage would do to the format right then and there in February of this year. And we have a very interesting result at the first major tournament, the grudge match number four that occurred in February. Mark Hornung of much dredge fame brought to a second place finish finish in that event of 84 players his cage breaker dredge which was named for trying to fight the challenge of the new cages and he did very well with the inclusion of four mental missteps in his main deck four ingot chewers in his sideboard he was able to fight through the well the the glut of cages that people were trying out in the environment right then and there and that really i think sets a very interesting tone for the whole year of the fact that despite this printing, which many lauded as the death of Dredge, and despite many people using it quite effectively, it's still just a bellwether of the format that you can't hate out any one deck with just one card, no matter how good it is. That and it also is resonant with Mark Hornung's personality. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. Challenge accepted. Well, right? he, he played and won the Vintage Championships with Dredge in the same exact mindset. He's, people were saying it couldn't be done, and he took it and did it. I think he called his Dredge deck, correct me if I'm wrong, Cage Breaker Dredge? That's right, Cage Breaker Dredge. <laughs> also emphasizing, right, um, what he's trying to do. Naturally. Um, and, and it reminded me that reminds that uh, we had a, a conversation that Cage was the was better than the most perfect anti dredge card we could come up with. <laughs> yes, that was pretty humorous part of that whole exercise because we had we had wished beforehand about what was possible and they blew us away from a design standpoint. Try and envision a better card. I know. <laughs> and I'd like to point out that it looks like in that top eight in addition to Mark's second place performance there, there were in sideboards 4, 8, 12, 14 cages in sideboards. And I'm going to do a find here to see if there's any in the main. Oh, yeah, there's one in the main. So 15 cages in that top eight. And he still got second place, which belies how many cages in a the whole 84-player event must have been enormous. Yeah, so that, that's notable being a gigantic tournament at the beginning of the year and the first place deck sean griffiths gush grow had one cage in the main and another one in the sideboard so he's playing a what looks like a three color grow deck with goifs and trigon predators some trinket mage jace and he has one graft diggers cage in the main deck and then proceeds to win that event the first major event after it was released incredible Let's talk so about the, the... the dynamic of, of cage and beating cage became the crucible of the beginning of this year. Next up, we have the D-Day tournament. 123 so, players in March in Empoli. That's in that's in Italy. So the D-Day tournament is an annual gigantic. Let me make sure I'm I'm accurate on that. I can just look up and see where Empoli is. Empoli. Sounds like Italy. <laughs> yeah, it is in Italy. It's near. It's in Tuscany. So. Um, and and so this is one of the largest Italian tournaments of the year, the annual Doomsday. And to continue the very interesting dynamic of Dredge and Cage, 
This event was won by a German and new friend of ours, Richard Lessman, with his build of dredge, which was not cage breaker dredge, which is a whole interesting feature in, unto itself. He had main deck unmask instead of mental misstep, but he has a main deck ancient grudge, and in his sideboard, four ingot chewers, four nature's claims, four chain of vapors, fully 12 answers to cage if he needs them. But the presence of unmask in his main was, I think, a very interesting part, a way to combat possible game one cages or anything else. Right. And it he, wasn't for a lack of cages in, those, in that tournament. No, not at all. And he got to then, with all his sideboard power, customize his response to his opponent's sideboard cards after sideboard. I'm going to review here. We've got three, six, seven, ten, twelve cages in this top eight, and he still managed to win first place. And some of the decks had main deck triple cage. That's right. One of the decks... The fourth place deck, which was a white trash list, had three main deck cages. And that really does form a major part of the, basically the story of Vintage for this year. Kicked off in January with our spoiling of Graf Digger's cage, and it really continues to this day. Indeed. But then in April, we got Avacyn restored, and specifically powerhouses like Gristlebrand and Cavern of Souls, both of which are seeing play in top eights again today. Gristlebrand brought forth, obviously, Oath of Druids, but secondarily, it brought forth not only its impact on Dredge as a possible real powerhouse of the late-game finisher, but also this new concept of a hybrid Oath, or it's not a new concept, it's something that had existed before, but really brought to the forefront this combination of possibly Oath, possibly show-and-tell, possibly ritual-based decks, the likes of which, say, Rich Shea came up with a very interesting version of a little bit later. And Gristlebrand really forced the issue by putting himself, I think, in multiple possible archetypes. Yeah, Gristlebrand uh, was Ryan DeMar's number one card from the set. Um, but he also said it might be the most important card from the block, which was a very bold statement in his article, given the block had... We're still working from Innistrad block here, right? Right. This is the end of Innistrad block now. Yeah. Given that Innistrad had Snapcaster Mage... Exactly. And then Dark Ascension had Grafdigger's Cage. There's some some rarefied air there in terms of vintage playables. But also we had Cavern of Souls, and that card has had a very subtle impact. People started looking at it, and all the buzz was about how you could build five-color humans decks that could play anybody you wanted, and they'd all be uncounterable, and you would have this great disruptive value engine of all your creatures. And then other people started looking and saying, well, I could just work a few of these into an existing deck and help me out against the blue decks help it so that my one casting cost guys didn't get misstepped quite as often. But ironically, after the dust settled and after vintage championships really solidified it, the Cavern of Souls has just found its place as a role player in Bomberman. And it does a very good job in those decks. Yep. I would say that Cavern of Souls is here to stay, but primarily as a role player and just that little bit of extra value to help get you over the edge in blue de- or blue mirrors, for example. Not necessarily mirrors, but blue matchups. And I think it's here for the long haul. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, long haul is relative to the time scale. <laughs> but <laughs> Naturally. And we're dealing on a very long time scale in this format. Uh, I think Cage is, probably has a longer time horizon, but certainly that's debatable. That's a fair point. So in May, we started the lead up to the Vintage Championship. 
with the Bazaar of Moxon. Which is the largest annual vintage tournament of the year. Now, folks, it's not really close. <laughs> no, it's not. And folks in Europe, we're being a little unfair to them. To say that they're the largest tournament in the world as a lead-up to another tournament is <laughs> somewhat ironic. But we don't, we don't deny the fact that we have a United States-centric show here. But the simple fact is the Bazaar of Moxon was very important for us in analyzing the preparedness of our metagame well, going into the... Well, also, our Vintage Year in Review uh, is a review of all of the vintage highlights, and that includes events, if they happen in the United States or not. Mm-hmm. So this tournament had 337 players. Which is awesome. And the winner? Eric Hegeman with Dredge. Cagebreaker Dredge. Yes, this list has Ingotchur main deck. Ingotchur main deck, in addition to Leyline of the Void main deck, which are the the not- notables of this main deck configuration, and then his sideboard. Since he has the Chewers main, looks, and an ancient grudge main, and an ancient grudge main, well, it it looks a lot like Richard Lessman's sideboard: four chains, four Nature's Claim, four Unmask, four Wisp Mare. So Eric has very similar list to. Richards, but he has the unmasks just, in the sideboard. So Ingotchewer is particularly tactically useful because it trumps both Mental Misstep and Flusterstorm. And Thorn of Amethyst. And Thorn. Yes. So it gets through all and destroys the cage. This was a major, major sign of adapting to the metagame for Dredge to move the Ingotchewers into the main deck. And a lot of people would say that has become the standard, at least until something else changes. And just like before, despite the fact that <laughs> Dredge takes first place, uh, despite the fact that there are, let's see, 4, 8, 9, 12, 14 cages in this top 8, it's consistent. 12 to 14 cages in that top 8, and Dredge is still taking first and second place reliably. And some of those were main. Two of those decks had main deck one cage, but still main deck cage. It's hard to say you know, what was going on. Did Cage create a false sense of security, or were just dredge pilots on top of it from from go? You know. And it was about this time we talked about it when Cage was spoiled, but it, this was really getting solidified for me. The notion of Cage represented a larger trend, which was it doesn't actually matter how good the answers are. At some point, you have to have enough of them for it to matter. <laughs> and at some point, it doesn't matter how efficient the answers are the metagame will still be able to adapt. And this main deck Ingotchur is a great example of that. Grafdigger's Cage is an unbelievably powerful weapon against Dredge, but they can simply adapt. And they demonstrated that throughout this year. June brought us a somewhat innocuous release, which was Plane Chase, and one which we had a great deal of fun reviewing. That episode, I would encourage you, if you're... If you have some free time this holiday season and you're looking for some greatest hits, you might want to go back and listen to that Baleful Strix discussion because it's one of our favorites to listen to and laugh at. Baleful Strix is one that, Steve, you you had to think a lot more confidence in than I did that it would be relevant and it would show up in consistent results. And you were right. It really is a real deal. It's not always there in the top eight, but it is still showing up here and there and has proved itself as a viable addition to a control deck in no small part because of the strength of workshops in the environment and the increasing effectiveness it was against emergent aggro strategies definitely and one thing i'd also like to point out here too is that while plane chase was a new and interesting thing uh, it's not the first time plane chase had been printed but the way they released these decks with new cards in them was the second example of something that i pretty sure will become a standard for the foreseeable future with the release of magic products and that is introducing 
cards into the eternal formats outside of randomly available boosters. So it started with Commander and things like Flusterstorm, which you know how we feel about that. And this product, Plane Chase Now, this is just the continuation of a trend which I think will become standard every year. We'll probably have at least one product that introduces new cards into the Eternal formats and gives us a shakeup without affecting standard. And I certainly hope that Baleful Strix and Flusterstorm are just the beginnings of strong, relevant printings. You know, I have to apologize. I'm skipping over Shardless Agent here, which unfortunately I did <laughs> during our original review. <laughs> and I almost made the same mistake again, but I caught myself. I knew there was something else about Plane Chase. Shardless Agent has become a staple in Noble Fish and other similar aggro style decks that want to get additional threats while getting card advantage and having a blue card to pitch the Force of Will. It really is just a nice niche fit for decks like that. And I don't know if it will always be the case, if it will always be there. It might be the sort of thing that gets cut for a bigger and better creature the next time one comes out. But for now, Shardless Agent has definitely staked its claim as a spot in Noble Fish. So by midsummer, there were some other interesting things going on in the vintage format. Uh, the previous December, Jimmy McCarthy had brewed up, I think with, with maybe even Richet, a spicy Delver deck. And that Delver deck had increased in popularity of one that the mean deck opened in Columbus um, in late June. Kevin, you got third place at that tournament playing land still. Did you face the Delver deck? No, not in that event, but I did play against another one of the team reflection guys up in Sandusky with a similar list earlier, and it was quite good. One of the things that, that really interested people and attracted them to this deck wasn't just um, was it was its position in the metagame. So we, we've already touched on and talked a little bit about the dynamic between Graft Digger's Cage, Mud, and Dredge. What we haven't really talked about is the other, some of the other key dynamics, particularly the fights between Landstill and the rest of the format. And you were playing Landstill for some time. And it was a pretty, you know, the end of 2011, Landstill was clearly a, a top-tier deck. Rug, I think, had come into existence in part as, a, as an answer to, um, to Landstill, right? Yes, definitely, and it had good tools for fighting and beating workshop decks at the time as well. And Soli Mossy, Mike Soli Mossy, wrote a really nice primer on Rug Delver and Vintage for Eternal Central, and he did very well in the prelim event. He won one of the Vintage Champs prelims, and I think they were one of the Vintage Champs prelims had two Rug Delver decks in the top four. That's right. So Rug Delver had, over the course of the summer, established itself as a top-tier vintage deck. That's definitely one of the most important storylines of the year. So that brings us right up to the Vintage Championship. Which we've covered at length. It was a good time. It was won by Grixis Control, piloted by Mark Lanigra, and which featured a number of workshop decks and Dredge in the top eight, but, again, was ultimately taken down by Bob and Jace. I think looking back on it, the Vintage Championship is notable for two reasons. One, in a sense, you could say it embodied the storylines up to it, but it also embodied those storylines by the conspicuous admissions, omissions. So, for example, I mean, the key obvious storyline is, look, the Vintage Championship Top 8 had four workshop decks, two dredge decks, and Grixis Control and Bomberman. So, you know, you know, Dredge had been fighting it out, very successful, very successful up until that event. But all the decks in the top eight were prepared to compete with Dredge. So you kind of saw the dynamic of Dredge and Dredge hate playing out. And this time, this time, not in favor of Dredge. 
you also saw Mud fighting, doing very, very well, surprisingly, if not shockingly well in the tournament, but then not able to seal the deal. I'll touch on that in a second. But I think the, the storyline by omission was the conspicuous absence of both Lansdale and UR Delver, which were probably at least among the top players, the two most popular blue decks going into the event, right? Well, I would say many players thought that those were the deck to play. Solly played his Rug Delver and had a disappointing finish even after having some buys. And, Dave Williams and uh, and Bob Marr, I think, played Landstill. In, right? in addition to a couple other famous Landstill players from the Northeast. And so the deck was well represented, I think, by good pilots. But you're right, it's conspicuous in its absence, especially given how well it had been performing in the in larger competitive metagames up to the event. The other thing that's notable about the event, at least in hindsight, but was probably not less apparent at the time, although definitely observable, was the influence of the new play draw rule. Now, you're referring to the fact that, and this had been created by Wizards earlier in the year and implemented in some of their major events, the seed at the end of the Swiss determined who would play first, or at least get the choice of playing first, in the top eight rather than any kind of other randomizing method. And so Mark Lenigra, who was first in the Swiss, had a decided advantage throughout the top eight by playing first against Dredge and Workshops twice. Right. I mean, in particular, the Workshop matchup. So Mark Brian DeMar's recent analysis of the Grixis Control versus Mud matchup suggests that Grixis Control is disadvantaged on the draw against Mud in a match. Surprisingly so. So being guaranteed to have two games on the play, at least two games on the play, um, should it come to that, was a tremendous advantage for Mark Lenigra. Mm-hmm. Very interesting that the player who was first in the Swiss was the ultimate winner in this regard. A lot of players, I think, would conclude that having a guaranteed on the play for the entire top eight is an enormous advantage in vintage, maybe more so than right. any other format. And I hate to say that because it feeds into the stereotype of vintage. I do, um, I do too, but... But it, it, but it is a reality. That play-a-draw rule may have actually determined, in large part, the vintage championship outcome. It feeds a stereotype, but... <laughs> I don't know how best to say this. It does feed a stereotype about the format being very fast, but it does so for an entirely different reason. It has everything to do with a matchup analysis, like Brian's article says, because it's not that the games are over on turn one because someone's on the play. It's that it provides an advantage from a metagame standpoint because a major pillar of the metagame in workshops is hinged upon its ability to disrupt its opponent. And mm-hmm. so it takes a more sophisticated view and understanding of the format to appreciate why being on the play gives you a significant advantage in that matchup. And in this particular top eight, it favored Mark above above all other players, I think. If a workshop player, say Blaine or someone else, had been at the top of the Swiss due to a twist of fate for certain other pairings or standings, we might be having a different conversation right now. And that's not to take anything away from the ingenuity or ability that Mark Lenegro demonstrated with his performance, um, which was tremendous um, in both respects. But it does raise some concerns about the new player draw rule, given the significance, especially for workshop decks, of being on the play and the difficulty that many decks have against workshops on the draw. Giving determining player draw by random method at least allows decks a fighting chance. I mean, so let's say on the draw, you know, a deck has on the play against workshops, some many decks are advantaged, tremendously so, but on the draw it becomes a much more tenuous uh, affair. And so I think that this rule let's just hope that workshop decks aren't the first seed in the next year's vintage championship. <laughs> put it that way. 
Well, and we'll see this time, well, it's not this time next year, about seven months from now, give or take, we'll have some new tools and maybe it will include something that allows us to fight workshops on the draw in a different way. We'll see. Steve, I'd also like to posit that you and I might want to have a topic for a future podcast about the significance of the play draw rule in vintage, the whole notion of how much advantage does it really provide and how fundamental that might be to the format. We could just have abbreviated conversation about that now. One concern I have about the play draw rule is that it over advantages people for for having a higher seed. I mean, there's no doubt that I, that the purpose of the rule is both to eliminate certain problems like intentional reduce the, the possibilities of intentional drawing in in the end later rounds of, of the Swiss and take some luck out of the randomness out of the top eight. But it also seems to me very clear that, at least in vintage, that rule, I think, goes against some of the spirit of what is going on. I think it over-advantages the top seeds. It's already enough of an advantage that you're a top seed. You don't need to have the additional bonus, in my opinion. And I also think that it marginalizes, to some degree, a lot of the preparation that's very important to the format. The whole notion of being on the draw against workshops is fundamental to how one builds, prepares, and plays this format. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm agreeing with you in that simple way, but generally speaking, I just think it diminishes a little bit of part of the significance of building and developing for this format. Like I said, I think any tournament where workshops are the top seed is going to be... It'll be heavily influenced. Punishing, yeah. yeah. I'd also like to talk, and we don't have to do it now, but I'd also like to brainstorm about possible alternatives to the play-draw rule as it exists today. I think that there's a case to be made that winning the die roll, making the difference between one card versus being on the play, is too large of a grain, too large of a change in vintage. I think there's room for a finer grain differentiation between who won the die roll or and or a way to make being on the draw less painful. Now, I'm, I there don't, are so I don't, many ways you could, you could do that. Yeah, don't I don't want to elucidate all the possibilities here, but I just like to seed that as maybe vintage could be, maybe vintage could drive change in the larger magic community in a, in that sense. Maybe we could be on the forefront of adopting different ways to look at it. And it could be that if we find a good solution that balances vintage better from that standpoint, maybe other formats would actually prefer it as well. Who knows? But the notion that, let me give you a simple equation. The notion that one turn is equivalent to one card, roughly speaking, is obviously not the same kind of statement across all formats. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to, um, it's, it's difficult to conclude that, that is exactly what that means. <laughs> I know, so, I know. But, but you, but regardless of whether or not that's really what that's the, the play draw rule is saying, it's not. It's a false equivalency, of course. But the notion that that's what it implies or that's what it uses to determine equality is still unarguably a different equation across different formats. That's really the point. The value of going first or the value of that card is obviously a different value across different formats. And to assume in Magic as a whole, to assume that in in Return to Ravnica block sealed and vintage, that those two equivalencies are roughly the same is patently absurd. But yet we've chosen that as the one way in which you measure the beginning of game process. Yeah. 
Well, the Vintage Championship definitely demonstrated the power of the existing, the new play draw rule. It will be very interesting to watch this over time, over the course of the next few years or other major tournaments that adopt it to see if it becomes a trend. Yeah, I think one one other criticism that I'll mention on it, and I have many, is that if, if you're going to apply that rule, why not apply it in the Swiss after the first round? The goal is to reduce randomness. Then, you know, after the first round, you can say, you know, the, the higher seed and you using tiebreakers even, right? Yeah. There are tiebreakers, many tiebreakers that exist. But let's move on. Let's, let's keep focus on. <laughs> so in the aftermath of the vintage championships, we came to return to Ravnica and we had a lot to say about return to Ravnica because I think there were many new, varied, interesting cards in the set. All the hybrid one-drop creatures, for example, every one of them was interesting to us. But at this point, I don't think the big winner from Return to Ravnica is even well-known. Rest in yeah. Peace, for example, we had talked at length about about how potent of a dredge hoser that was. Maybe even more potent than Grafdigger's Cage, specifically against dredge. Mm -hmm. And yet the problem, of course, is it's a white card and it has no home. Yeah, and so and the results have borne that out. There have been a couple of people trying to make it work, but it has not carved its niche in the format yet. The, the impact of Return to Ravnica, such as there is, is not yet clearly manifest. Yep, we'll hopefully know more in about a, a month when we do our gate crash set review. But right now, I think the jury is still out. And in addition to being a little immature from a metagame standpoint, Return to Ravnica was somewhat quickly overshadowed by what happened in October, Steve. Burning Wish was, Burning Wish was unrestricted, long-awaited. And it, it's the not huge, but it's the only unrestriction, and in fact changed the banned and restricted list all year. We haven't, yeah, we've had kind of a dearth of things to talk about with regard to bans and restrictions. Not that we can't debate them into the wee hours of the night, but the simple fact is this is the only thing we had that actually happened. Yeah, and it allowed me to revive, inspired me to revive Burning Long with new printings in lieu of Lion's Eye Diamond. And I've had great fun and great success playing this deck. Most recently, it won an Italian tournament in Milan with almost 30 players, uh, almost card for card my list, December 16th a few days ago and it had there was a very interesting tournament in i believe the city is muthal germany where it was a small tournament but there were fully three burning wish decks in the top eight which i thought <laughs> was incredible the the deck has not shown up in many top eights yet but it was only october of course yeah. but i think that burning long is definitely something that players should understand and respect because i think it's better than its numbers belie at this point it'll take some time for people to learn it it's a very very difficult and complex deck to play and requires a, a huge usually different skill set than our, than most players have especially if they're not familiar with combo and every play you make with that deck is fraught with uh both high risks with risks and with um unforeseen outcomes and <laughs> possible foils possible foils. but the what i'm looking for is multiple lines of diverging branches of play mm -hmm. so you really have to think through a lot every time you do something and the sideboard is hugely important too given that it's a burning wish deck so in in retrospect we have a lot that you can't hasn't been resolved yet the return to ravnica burning wish a lot of those things are still up in the air and you've yet to be played out but i think the storylines that led up 
to the Vintage Championship were resolved. The dynamics between Cage and um, the fight, Cage and Dredge, was resolved, not necessarily in favor of either one of them, but in favor of a sort of multiplicity of answers mm-hmm. to Dredge. Um, and Dredge has not really done the same since. It was gangbusters leading up to the Vintage Championship that has fallen off a little bit. And the the uh, insurgents, UR Delver, Rug Delver, and um, Lansdale have fallen back a little bit. Um, and it seems like workshops... Maybe even combo are ascendant at the moment. Is that your read of where we are? It is, and Bob J decks are still omnipresent. At any given top eight, you're still going to see one to three of them, and in the high position still. Both Grixis and Bomberman. Yep. Embodying that. Yep. So, Steve, shall we move on to the Moxies for 2012? Absolutely. <laughs> very proud to uh, award these yes we are we have three categories as i alluded to earlier best card best deck and best storyline all things which we've covered in detail throughout our show throughout the year we solicited your nominations and the uh the answers are in kevin (laughs) why don't you we'll start with do we'll do one category at a time you want to start with best card Yes, and for my part, the best card of this year is definitely Graft Digger's Cage. The card is, as we've said, efficient, both narrowly hitting certain archetypes, but broadly hitting multiple archetypes in the format to different ways. Easily played in numerous decks, quickly rocketed into the top 10 of played cards, and on top of all of that, created just numerous interesting dynamics from a deck design play and metagame shifting standpoint and it informed some of the major storylines of the year as well i just don't know how any other card from this year (laughs) could be considered the best card other than this one well i i'm inclined to agree with you um if we're especially if we're defining it as best new card the graph diggers cage shaped the formats ways that were obvious and and subtle it is i think the number one card for vintage from uh 2012. So congratulations to Grab Digger's Cage. It's the Armoxy best card, um, 2012. All right. So I went first on the card. Steve, what are your thoughts on the best deck of 2012? We might get a little bit more variety here. Well, there were a number of interesting decks that came emerged this year. There were some interesting takes on old decks, like some of the most recent mud variations with Dismember. They call that Terra Nova and all the various, the Kaldotha Forge Master mud deck has been very good. Uh, Rug Delver has been a very interesting deck, even though I think, even though it first appeared in December, I think we could say that it's pretty much a 2012 deck. Bobberman with Cavern of Souls is an interesting take on an old deck. The Strix deck is an interesting new deck. I'd have to say that the most impressive deck of the year has to be, oh, and certainly Cagebreaker Dredge is, is a, a close runner-up. And toot my own horn, I think the Burning Long deck is awesome, but the jury is still out on whether that can have mass success. So with all those eliminated, I'd have to say that the Grixis Control deck that won Vintage Championships is the most interesting new deck of the year. It reconfigured some common elements in unusual ways, um, was very potent against Dredge and Workshops, and was just a tremendous success. Um, I'd have to say Grixis Control. I believe there is a very strong case for the Grixis Control, not only because of Mark's winning performance at the Vintage Champs, but just in general, 
this archetype just is omnipresent and it continues to evolve. And we talked about it in our history of the schools of magic podcast before about how you can draw a direct line from this deck all the way back through the history of the format. It is omnipresent. It is ever evolving. And it really, I think represents the history of the format. But if we're just talking about 2012 and our award for the best deck, and you're going to sense a theme here, I think, but I've got to give it to dredge. And not necessarily for the reasons you might think. Yes, it won major events. Yes, it adapted to metagame changes and and adapted to Cage specifically and fought through that. And yes, it was piloted in a number of different contexts and by a lot of players in lots of tournaments and to good success. But my favorite part about Dredge this year is how it demonstrated an emerging concept, which is one of my new favorite things to talk about in Vintage, and that is the thing I called before about critical mass of effects, but more specifically about how we now have so many different cards that do so many different things that you just can't stop a deck, even though we have awesome answers. We've got Rest in Peace, Leyline of the Void, Grafdigger's Cage, Tormod's Crypt, which we've had since years and years ago. We still can't stop this deck. So I guess you could say that about a number of decks. You could say that about Mud. We can't stop it with all the Shatter effects we've got. And you could say it about Grixis Control. We can't stop it with all the, I don't know, Counter Spells and Xanid Swarms or what have you. But Dredge, I think, embodies this the most. It is a very streamlined, narrow deck. Debatably so, but it's, I think, more narrow than anything else. And you still can't stop it. And it still continued to win major events after major event, even after one of the best hosers of all time was created. If if I think this award is just best deck of the year, right? Not best new deck. So the best so the best card award is the best new card, whereas the best deck is just the best deck award. That's right? fair. That's fair. Okay. The, I guess in one sense that you make a very compelling case for Dredge, especially how strong it performed after Cage was printed. Um, I think if we're looking at the totality of the year, I mean, if you're looking just at the Vintage Championship performance, you do have to acknowledge that Mud put four decks in the top eight which gives it a very compelling case. Good point. Uh, um, but if, but you're, if you're going that, to look at tournament performance, you just can't deny the fact that Mud and Grixis Control and Bomberman, there's a short list of decks that are filling out five to seven slots of every top eight lately. Right. So that's not a differentiator, I don't think. I'm comfortable. I'm com- so comfortable with my answer, given that it won the most important American, at least, vintage tournament of the year. But uh, I, I, I think we're just going to have to get out, give out two moxies this year. I think that's fair, especially given that my nomination won the largest tournament in the in the face of the earth this year at the Bazaar of Moxen. So I think uh, we can just split it for this one and award two moxies for Grixis Control <laughs> and for Dredge. They both put up, yeah. Congratulations to both. They both put up incredible performances year year round for different reasons and in different ways. And I think they're both here to stay. Great. So that brings us to our final Moxie category. Now this one might this one might be even harder to award than the best deck, where we both had some pretty convincing results and cases to rely upon. I'll go first this time because I want to continue my thread that I've got here, and I've already sort of answered the question already, but. My favorite storyline for this year is the vintage metagame. How it adapts, new printings that make everyone gaga at first, and yet the format does not become defined by this new powerful card in the sense that it's unstoppable. The format simply adapts. We've had a number of cards that we looked at at first blush and thought, 
this is amazing. How will we ever get past this? And we do. We've had another couple of cards that we looked at and thought, this can't be good enough, right? It's just a value card, or it's only going to give you plus one card in the case of Baleful Strix, and yet here it goes, and it's and it's adaptable, and, and you can build around it. I just think that this year is a fantastic example, card after card, deck after deck, tournament after tournament, of how Vintage is an adaptable format with a real metagame, and it defies all the stereotypes that people who aren't familiar with the format might still have. I just love it, and I think you couldn't ask for a better thing leading into Vintage appearing on Magic Online because you want a healthy format that will attract players if they allow the meritocracy that we've we've mm-hmm. hoped for. Well, there are... So so what exactly is your, your storyline? The, the vintage metagame, the evolution okay. and adaptiveness of the vintage metagame. Well, that could be the storyline of every year. Well, but I'll, but no, I'll, but... Stick the headli- I'll stick to the headlines. <laughs> There's so many great headlines from this year, right? There's the unrestriction of Burning Wish and the return of Long. Mm-hmm. There's the, you know, announcement of Power 9 on Moto. There is, uh, you know, the dynamic between Cage and Cage Breaker Dredge. Uh, and, uh, you know, so many other things. I think the, the storyline of the year, though, is the fact that a German came to Gen Con with a very brilliantly designed and well-tuned deck and a nice skill set and took it down. And I think Mark Lenigra's success, it's not just the fact that he was German, you know, like Hiromichi Atal came from Japan, but it's the way he did it. The deck he chose, his performance, the way he cleaned up in the top eight, all of it is just the greatest storyline of the year. And I and probably, in, you know, some of these other storylines haven't played out yet. If this year we'd seen Power 9 on in Vintage on Magic Online, maybe that would be the top story. And maybe but it, that hasn't happened. And maybe it will a year from now. But you make a very good case. Mark's performance and all of the associated details surrounding it his deck selection, but the way he played and the impact of the metagame on his choices and the play draw rule that you said. And, and the fact that he was a experienced player from the European metagame and brought that knowledge to bear in the United States. You're right. That is a fantastic story. And I love every bit of it. And we had a great interview with Mark and I had a number of other conversations with him that weren't recorded for the show and he was just a, a great guy and fun to visit with, and I really liked getting his perspective on things from across the pond. A great year. It really was. So, what do you think? Can we can we award a split decision, or are you you think the metagame's not a worthy candidate for a storyline? <laughs> I don't think that's a headline. Well, it's certainly not a headline. No. You know, that's fine. I'll live with that. I'm going to continue tooting this horn. I think about the metagame because I firmly expect that that this is a topic that will become the standard if it hasn't already become the standard for us you it will be you will be hard pressed to print a new card that can really upset the cart for vintage well, in the well, vintage is like it's such a complex system it's like trying to move a planet you can do some things that, that move the system in in one direction but it's a slow moving machine yes you're very much right about the complexity of the system and i don't know if it always moves really slow but for the seed larger trends, you're right. They were slow to develop this year, and they spanned a lot of tournaments, a lot of printings, and a lot of time. So I'm comfortable saying that I think that the Vintage Champ story this year, Mark's winning of it on all the ancillary details, that's a, that's probably the best headline of the year. So recap our, our moxies of 2012. Best new card, Graph Digger's Cage, although there were a lot of good competition there with Gristlebrand and potentially rest in peace. Um, best do deck, best deck of 2012. I think we, we did a split decision. So we gave a moxie to Grixis control and a moxie to cage breaker dredge. And finally, the best storyline of the year, Mark Lenigra's 
unprecedented championship victory. What a great year. We should be lucky to have this much fun to talk about every year from here on out. I have a feeling that with the online arrival of power that next year we'll have plenty of topics and we might have to even, I don't know, we might have to think about expanding our award show to more categories <laughs> next year. It's going to be so much to talk about. Looking forward to it. And it all starts in just a couple of weeks with Gate Crash. Start the year with a bang. No kidding. Because we couldn't come to a decision on the best deck of 2012, one best deck, our question for this episode to you is, what do you think the best deck of 2012 is? Was it Grixis Control? Was it Dredge? Was it something else? Give us an email or a tweet and let us know. Thank you for listening to episode 20 of So Many Insane Plays. Our next episode, number 21, will be our review of Gate Crash, which we're very excited about. Until then, you can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Read it, it's not safe protective game! <laughs> <laughs>